my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today I'm going to talk about why so many people are done with California dreaming and are hightailing it out of California. I also have some great advice for you on simplifying your retirement savings. But before I get to that, I want to remind you that you only have one more week to try to win my money. That's right. I'm giving away cold, hard cash on our deal site. Just go to clarkdeals.com slash contest. So I had two nephews and a niece that lived in California and loved living there. I mean, they loved living in California till they all three hit a certain age. Seemed to be, uh, you know, at various points for two of them, one early 30s, one mid 30s, and the other late 40s, they all found that it's too expensive, too much hassle, and they all three have left California. Now I have my middle child, my daughter, lives in Southern California and loves it. So there's definitely a phase that people go to California and it's the greatest thing ever, and then they hit a wall at some point. What is that wall? Well, if you listen to the governor of the state of Texas, it's about taxes. And Californians are moving to Texas in big numbers. I mean, you look at the stats on moving trucks. They're moving full out of California, empty back to California. State's got a problem. For the first time since California became a state was 1845, I guess. First time California's ever lost a congressional seat in the recent census. Texas continues its growth, adding two. And there's always this back and forth, California, Texas. So there was a deep study done of what are the reasons that a Californian would move to Texas. And so the brightest minds at two of the fanciest universities in the country, the University of Texas, is the people who went to UT say, they just say the university. You don't have to say anything else. Uh, university of Texas and Stanford teamed up on a study. And let me tell you, they didn't need to do this study because the answers are pretty clear. Number one reason people move from California to Texas, and it would probably be true why they moved to Utah, Arizona, Nevada, Kansas, um, uh, Missouri, wherever. Why did they move? The cost of housing. Oh, my goodness. It's unbelievable the difference in the cost of housing between Texas and California. So what percent of houses in the great state of Texas cost more than half a million dollars? 7%. On the other hand, in California, what percent of houses cost more than half a million dollars? 60%. I mean, the reality is 
I think about my daughter's building that she lives in as a tenant in Pasadena. This apartment building is overwhelmingly filled with families of all different ages. The apartments aren't that big, but they're people who have uh, middle-class jobs. They cannot afford to buy a home, and so they rent. And I think what sends a lot of people when they hit that stage of their lives that they're pairing up or getting married or have kids, they want to move to a place that they can actually afford to have a home. And you can't do that right now in California. And this is true a lot of coastal areas because you've got that natural barrier of that ocean and people aren't building on that ocean that you've got just not enough land. While Texas, although it is on the Gulf of Mexico, it's a huge state with massive amounts of land. And the four huge cities that account for 60% of the state population are in the center um, east kind of area the four kind of in a box san antonio austin dallas houston and so housing's big but the other factor taxes so according to the houston chronicle what texas spends per resident on government is about 4700 a year what does california spend 7300 a year and so california has a state income tax, and it's pretty moderate compared to states that have state income tax. Till you become a higher earner, and then it becomes bad, ugly. Texas has no state income tax. Uh, one thing you should know if you do decide to pack and move to Texas, that home you buy, the property taxes in Texas are really nasty. But if you're paying much less for a home than you would elsewhere, that kind of is counteracted by the fact that you've paid less for a home. And so, you know, got Stanford and UT Austin doing this study, but the reality is what your gut was was always true. Cost of housing, cost of taxes, those are the things that drive people to other places. Krista? All right, let's get to some questions. The first one's from David, who lives in California. I'm a pastor of a church that gives me 5% of the receipts of the church for my retirement. I've been pastoring for three years, and I'm 30 years old. It was suggested that I put money into a 403B. What do you think? I'm a giant fan and respect your opinion almost as much as one of my parents. Well, David, thank you, and thank you for the service you render to the members of your church. And so the money that comes your way, in order for it to be properly put into a retirement account, has to be structured right with the church making the contributions for you to the plan you're going to participate in as some form of uh, payroll deduction or money deposited by the church directly rather than indirectly through you. You may have eligibility um, for something else. You may be eligible for what's known as a self-employed 401k if you were the only employee of the church. The reason I mention that is a 401k is available to you with much lower costs than you'll typically have with a 403b. 
But if you are going to do the 403B route, you need to look at one of the low-cost providers for that. Uh, one is TIAA, which is a very large player in 403Bs, and the other would be Fidelity Investments. And if you can do a 403B with either of those, you should do just fine in terms of the costs and building up good money for your future. I want you to do the Roth version of a 403B because as a pastor, you don't make a lot of money, so I don't want you to go in pre-tax into something. I want it to be after-tax money that goes into this 403B so it grows tax-free, and later in your life in retirement, you'll be able to spend the money tax-free. And I hope this all makes sense that I've explained. From Joseph in Arizona, I know conventional wisdom is that buying a used car offers better value in most cases. I need to get a new vehicle as my 2005 car has finally given up. Current, given the current conditions in the new and used markets, has the situation changed to where it's better to buy new at this time? So first of all, fantastic. You are still running around with a 16-year-old vehicle. And the used and new vehicle markets are really messed up right now. There's extreme shortages in both the used and new markets. And for a while, earlier this year, there were bigger inventory issues in the used vehicle market than the new. That is no longer true. Uh, new vehicle sellers are facing extreme inventory issues. If you drive past new vehicle dealer lots, you'll see how empty most of them are. So I would say that looking at a three-year-old vehicle of a particular make and model that you're interested in and then comparing it to the price of a new one of that make and model is how you'll be able to make that best decision. If you can buy that three-year-old vehicle for a third less than what a new one would be, then go ahead and buy the three-year-old used vehicle. But on the other hand, the gap is less than that. That would push you more towards buying a new one. And the vehicle shortages will ease eventually, um, but it won't be soon enough for anybody who's in the vehicle market right now. And this is from Peter in California. Are there any disadvantages to having your auto and home insurance with the same provider? For example, if I have a car accident, will this affect my home insurance cost? Peter, great question. It will not affect your home insurance costs. But what happens is if you're in what's called tying, where you have the auto and homeowners together, is let's say you do have an auto accident and the insurer wants to massively surcharge your rates, you're getting a discount right now for having your auto and homeowners together. The insurers like to tie you that way. So you then are kind of their prisoner after you have an accident in that it becomes hard for you to shift out. But in a case like that, if you did have your insurance tied, both one and the other, both together, you have an auto accident, you're likely going to find it hard to shop for auto insurance elsewhere for a period of time after an at-fault accident. But it might be worth it if there's a much better deal, let's say, on homeowners to move it. 
So the big disadvantage is when something goes wrong. As long as nothing's gone wrong, having them together and getting the discount for having both together is a true advantage. Straight ahead, I want to share an idea with you that may truly shift the way you think about saving for retirement. Obviously, if you've listened to me for any period of time, maybe a nanosecond forward, you know my obsession on living on less than what you make. It lowers anxiety in your life. And in a capitalist system, it gives you more freedom in your life. When you are not in a position where I owe, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, instead, you create breathing room in your life by living your life where you're spending less than what you make. Now, obviously, there's a percent of people who are earning extremely low wages and become what they talk about in economics, negative net savers, meaning that just the cost of putting food on the table, paying the power bill, paying the rent, may exceed just the most basic necessities for someone making an ultra-low income may go beyond what you're earning. And so this is not for you. This is for a typical income earner in the United States. Um, You know, moderate income earner, maybe less than the average in the country, maybe a little more than the average. You do have more wiggle room than you realize to live on less than what you make. But I can talk about that all day long, and I, you know, I talk about how if you start saving for retirement, you know, at 20 or 15 or 25 or 30, what you got to save to get there. But a lot of times, people don't expect they're ever going to get old. I don't know what that's about, but they don't think they are, or life is just having all its events going on, and you never really get around to saving for retirement. And I know when I talk to people that are 40 years old or older who've not been able to save anything for retirement yet, they approach me with this enormous amount of guilt about it. Let the guilt go. You are where you are, and you save when you save, and you build that future when you can. And so I was particularly intrigued by an item written by The Motley Fool about What happens if you don't get around saving till later in your working life cycle? All hope is not lost. It just means you have to save more. And they use the target, something people can really get their arms around, and that's having a million dollars when you retire. That you can do that in 30 years. So let's say you start at 40, it means when you're 70, you'll have that million dollars. If you start at 35, 65, 37, 67. And the concept is $737 a month. Saving that, starting when you start doing it, 30 years later, typical return on investments, you'll have a million dollars. Flat 737. And that's just how the, the math backed out that it would be that much per month over a 30-year period, which on the average salary in the United States is 15% of your pay. 
So the reason I point this out, there's lots of ways to get to the retirement goal. I just want you to know that it's not a hopeless event, that it's all about when you start is when you start, and it just means you got to put more aside. At the other extreme, I've talked about when a kid starts working at 16 years old, that if a kid puts money aside, small amounts, every year into a retirement account and stops in their early 20s, never puts another penny in, they'll still be a millionaire by the time they hit retirement. So the earlier you start, the less you got to put aside. The later you start, the more you have to put aside. And only when you wait much, much later does it become a mountain to climb. But it doesn't mean you don't even try to do some steps up that hill if you never get around to it and you're in your 50s. You save what you save because every dollar you save gives you some amount of financial independence later in your life. And when I talk about investing and getting a typical return, it requires that you do low-cost investing, which, you know, I, I love to talk about. And I was very excited about a new Gallup poll that found that three-quarters of American investors now say that index funds are a superior way to build wealth than buying individual stocks. Three-quarters of people get it now. And 90% of people know that you cannot time the market. There's always people who are going to say, hey, I'm going for that big score. I'm going to buy those stocks. I'm in, I'm out. I'm buying this one and selling that one, on and on and on. And that is sport. That is not investing. Krista? This question is from Chase in New Mexico. I recently got married. Congratulations. Both my wife and I have been contributing to Roth IRAs when we were single. But now that we're married, I believe we will be ineligible with a combined income of over 208000 What should we do? Roll our 2021 Roth contributions into traditional IRAs? Then going forward, should we just fund traditional IRAs? We both have 401k retirement accounts at work too. So does that make traditional IRA contributions non-tax deductible? Okay, so it is weird that there's a better deal offered to single individuals on doing a Roth IRA than it is to married couples. You get punished as a married couple on an income ceiling that where each of you, as singles, made an amount of money that kept you eligible for Roths. You combine that income, and because it's not double the limit when you get married, you are no longer able to contribute to Roth IRAs. And yes, it's a great problem to have that combined you earn over $200,000 a year. That's great. And why the tax code punishes you against saving for retirement blows my mind. But anyway, you can't do a traditional IRA. You can do an obscure thing called a non-deductible IRA. And there's a lot of rumors that Congress is going to mess around with what's known as the backdoor Roth. But until they do and unless they do, you can contribute each year 
the $6,000 each into a non-deductible IRA and then immediately move that money into a Roth IRA, even though you would not be income eligible to go directly in the Roth IRA, you can do this non-deductible thing and then move the money to the Roth. Now, in order to make it work, you can't have other money sitting in a traditional IRA. You can only move the money if you don't have any money in traditionals. And that gets pretty complicated. And again, who knows what Congress is going to do. The alternative in your case, do your 401ks up to the max. If you have a Roth 401k option where you work, better to do that at your income level and tax level than the traditional. And you can put in a huge amount of money into a traditional or Roth 401k. If you still want to save more money, do a simple investment account where you put money into straight out uh, broad market index funds like a total stock market, international um, market index fund, that kind of thing. And the tax treatment is very favorable, not as good as tax-free like in a Roth, but very favorable. The other angle you could look at is if either of you are HSA eligible, HSA accounts are a great way to stash money that is even better tax-wise than a Roth IRA. All right, this is from Skyler in Washington. I'm planning on getting an elective surgery done next year, which has always been my dream. It costs about $9,000 cash, which I have saved on top of six months emergency savings. Emergency savings. My question is, the surgeon's practice uses care credit, which I could use to front the $9,000 and pay 0% interest for six months. Have you heard of this? I'm wondering if I should do this so that my $9,000 can sit in my online savings earning interest for that extra time. What are your thoughts? I have an excellent credit score thanks to your advice. So, Skyler, um, number one, Care Credit and many other competitors are very common for any elective surgery practices or dental practices. The idea is that a lot of people are either underinsured or uninsured for various procedures and they don't have the money, so they offer these kind of credit plans. In your case, with interest rates being as low as they are on savings, I think it's cool. You've already saved the $9,000. you are ready to pay for it. Just pay for it. Don't take out the line of credit because what you'll earn on $9,000 in six months is like, is it right now like $45? I think it's about what you'll earn. So for $45 in interest, I don't even think it's that much. It's not worth it for you to do an extension of credit, have to remember to pay exactly on the right day before the six months that you'd be charged retroactive interest, blah, blah, blah. And you did the good job of saving for what you wanted to do. Just walk out the door owing nothing. And from Garen in Michigan, I was recently offered an opportunity to intern with a large company in Nashville. They're providing a generous bonus of $5,500, which is typically used for housing. My question is, if you have any advice on where to search for apartments for just the summer months. A friend of mine recommended Airbnb because of the convenience. 
I'd love a place close to downtown where I can enjoy the city as I'm from a small town of about 12,000. So congratulations on the internship and wonderful that they're going to pay you the $5,500. If the internship is for three months, $5,500 is likely not going to cover the full cost of your rent for the summertime. You'll likely have to cough up some extra money. Um, Nashville is really, really in. And so it provides a lot of housing opportunity with flexibility. Traditional apartment complexes in Nashville, many of them offer short-term what they call executive apartment rentals, which could be a small studio apartment or a one-bedroom where they come furnished and allow typically a 90-day lease. So all you got to do is show up. It's like renting a hotel room for three months. Your friend is also right that it's great to check Airbnb and their competitor VRBO for rentals you could do. The advantage of Airbnb in particular is you may be able to rent a garage apartment or a basement apartment in someone's house in Nashville that would fit within the $5,500 bonus that they're giving you to pay for housing. And I hope you have a great, great time in Nashville. I was just in Nashville recently, and it was uh, the town was really alive. And if you're into music, the music scene there is extreme. And I'm so glad you joined us for this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, and I hope the rest of your day is fantastic.